Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Who is it? Get out. Are you Sarah Scarf? What if I am? What is it to you? Can't you see I'm drinking alone in my grimy office? What's that you're drinking, Sarah Scarf? Hand sanitizer. Liquor is for sissies. Your powers are needed, Sarah Scarf. We're reforming the legion of depressed, commitment-phobic millennial heroes. I don't do that stuff anymore. Why does everybody say that? The rest of the legion of depressed, commitment-phobic millennial heroes is waiting for you in a nearby gastropub. Lithium Lady, Dr. Frowny Face, Captain Hashtag Woke, and Mark Oppenheimer. Mark Oppenheimer? He's in? Well, obviously. He has a very full schedule, but he thinks he can make it to 70% of the battles. You don't need me. Our enemies are strong this time. Madame Heavy Fabric has reunited with Moonbear Penis and the Men with Sticks. Madame Heavy Fabric? The one who shops at Chico's from Hell? That sounds terrifying, but I'm just going to sit here and wallow in self-hatred. There is one more. Listen to what's on my phone. I don't like your little games. Don't like your tilted stage. The role you made me play. The fool. No, I don't like you. (gasps) Taylor Swift is back. But we killed her with snake emojis. She has reinvented herself. This is serious. I'm going to need a bigger scarf. Let me check my closet. You grab that box of Purell. I mean, health food bars. The rest of you get ready for the nose featuring modern lit girl, ultra geek, and the mysterious Professor Y. And now, repeated nocturnal urination man, Colin McEnroe. (laughs) I need a new superhero identity. I don't... You get older, it's harder to sleep through the night. What can I tell you? But that means I'm more awake and ready to face evil at all times. So, yes, a little bit later on the show today, we'll be talking about The Defenders, which is part of the um, Marvel Netflix subgenre of grimy, morose, moody heroes uh, trying to save the world, but reluctantly, grudgingly, grudgingly saving the world. Uh, and But before we get to that, we have a couple of topics here in the first segment. And before we get to that, we have to say who's on the show today. It's The Nose, our cultural roundtable. So with us is Rebecca Castellani, entertainment director uh, at Bridge Street Live in Canton, Connecticut, the thriving uh, Montmartre district that is Collinsville. She is at the center of it. Uh, Pedro's, and actually, but there, there should be like a whole superhero scene there too, right? Like there the, is. Like I can't talk about it. Dark, though. Yeah, it's the little... first rule of Collinsville Fight Club is you can't talk about <laughs> exactly. it. Exactly. So, uh, Pedro Soto is a chief operating officer at Spacecraft Manufacturing in New Haven, and Bill Usman, making his debut on the nose today, Yay. is director of the Media Literacy and Digital Culture Graduate Program at Sacred Heart University. And I should say also that also from Sacred Heart University, we have Haley Morris, who's just hanging out with us today. But she's a publicist in training. So, uh, and obviously there's going to be some people that we're going to talk about right now who need publicists and probably have publicists. And with that in mind, we will uh, start, in fact, with Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift has just dropped a single. Um, that apparently these days is a cultural event, right? I guess it is. <laughs> yeah. No, it is. I mean, I think we have to sort of face that fact that we have a small group of superstars whose work 
for whatever reason or however you feel about it, whose work tends to be an event. And then I think the other thing that happens is they build it up into as much of an event as they possibly can. Uh, there are no longer record stores where people can line up to buy your products. So you have to do that in this kind of digital environment, create uh, quite a bit of buzz and excitement. Um, we'll play a little bit more of the song in just a second so that you can get a full sense of it. But uh, we're now going to go to Taylor Swift scholar, uh, Rebecca Castellani. That's what she was studying in Edinburgh. It's true. Uh, and so, I mean, all of this, this song – which is a new single, her first single in a couple of years now, um, sits in this incredibly complicated context of this sort of pop music Bloomsbury, you know, of all these people who are just constantly interacting with one another for the most part in very negative ways. Yeah, you really elevated that. <laughs> um, I'm yeah, trying. I'm yeah, trying. it's got a certain Bloomsbury intrigue and social dynamic to it, sure. Um, so basically, as far as I know, Taylor Swift hasn't released new music since 2014. That's correct. Yeah. When that happened, shortly thereafter, then Kanye West released his latest album in which there was a line about making Taylor Swift famous. Um, well, he said, I'll, I'll be the person yeah. who say that. Okay. I can take the FCC fine. Okay. He said, I made that bitch famous. Yes. Yeah. And that caused this whole backlash where Taylor Swift said, basically, Kanye's camp said that they'd approved this with Taylor's camp. Taylor disagreed. Came Kardashian had the read receipts, aired them on Snapchat. Everybody saw this <laughs> phone conversation where Taylor Swift was clearly <laughs> aware of what was going on. So then everyone started calling her a snake. And again, as far as I understand, the snake emoji has come to signify somebody who is sneaky as a snake. So they started flooding, they meaning the mass internet conscious, started flooding her Instagram with snake emojis, Taylor's. She then proceeded to sort of have a, a media blackout. No one has heard anything from her for quite a while. She's been rather <laughs> reclusive. And now she's released new music and is reclaiming the snake emoji. The only promo she did in anticipation of this were this like slithering snake and the album's called Reputation. And now she's got this song that's basically calling out the industry and society at large for what they've made her do. She's, she's had to kill good Taylor Swift, country musician with the curly blonde hair, and now she's dark Taylor Swift. So <laughs> we all have to suffer the consequences. Would you like to take uh, a moment to wallow in Jessica Jones-like self-loathing? Yeah. Uh, no, but I, the fact that you know I'm, all those I'm pretty, things that you just said? I'm pretty depressed about this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All my credibility has gone out the window I, as a scholar. I hope so. you feel really dirty right now. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so now we, we will play the song for you again. Now that Rebecca has given you a crash course, a high speed crash course in everything or everything and more than everything really that you need to know about all this here's a little bit of that song again I don't like your little games don't like your tilted stage the role you made me play of the fool no I don't like you I don't like your perfect crime how you when you lie You said the gun was mine Isn't cool No, I don't like you oh. But I got smarter I got harder In the nick of time Honey, I rose up from the dead I do it all the time I got a list of names And yours is in red underlined I check it once Then I check it twice Oh, oh look what you made me do Look what you made me do The song is called Look what you made me do you know, Pedro, I just want to go back to the stuff that Rebecca was talking about. I mean, there's it's almost like some kind of federal compliance action these days to release music. I mean, there's all this supporting documentation you have to come up with, right? <laughs> That's true. I mean, it is it is getting into like so much media, like the defenders that we'll talk about is that a lot of the stuff um 
it does actually have to come with all sorts of, uh, yeah, other websites, you know, links, hashtags that you need to follow. The snake emoji, which I was not aware about. I guess now there's probably a whole snake emoji Tumblr page, you know, with different snake oh, there emojis. Has been one. <laughs> oh, so yeah, I mean, there's there's all sorts of um, uh, uh, of. Uh, in, uh, instructions that come with stuff like this now. If only we had a professor of media literacy with us. <laughs> Wait, we do. I so, think there is someone <laughs> like that so, around. Bill Usman, you and I are a little bit maybe closer in age than I am anyway to Pedro. And I Rebecca. refuse to admit that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, um, and I was trying to think back to whether things were contextualized at this level with pop music, you know, in the 60s, 70s, even 80s. And, you know, you would know certain things and certainly when the Beatles got into the period where there was a lot of, you know, exegesis being done on I their lyrics. I remember when Paul died. Yeah, when Paul died and stuff like that. But I, just as a matter of course, I think music kind of stood or fell on whether or not the song – was something people wanted to listen to. Something as basic as that uh, that question. I'm not even sure that's the case anymore. I mean, th there is a lot of media literacy that goes with appreciating a song like this one. Yeah, I think, you know, the first thing that you have to think about is, so who is this mysterious you that she's addressing? You know, is it Kanye? Is it somebody else? Is it all of the, you know, many, many people who have done terrible, terrible things to her? Taylor is really mad and somebody's going to pay and that kind of makes us one, you know, leads us to trying to figure out who that is and to dissect all of this. What's this gun that she's talking about? What's the metaphor that she's, you know, how is that gun going to materialize? Like, I don't think she actually means a gun. So it's, it's going to go off in the second act. That's for sure. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Great point. Right. So I guess we have to then buy all the rest of the songs to, to maybe trace this in. I mean, is it possible that this is going to be like a concept album? I, I think that that is the, the suspicion is that yeah. this will be a concept album. And so you just have to listen to every piece to really kind of get that full mosaic put together. But I feel what, what you were about to say something. No, I mean, body I, language wise, I, you were about to say something. I just think that, yes, I think that is what she's trying to do. I think that's what she's always tried to do. She's got this incredible fan base that loves to find all these Easter eggs and figure out the little. I mean, there's this whole thing with numeracy and Taylor Swift. You can go on and on and on. She is in the mm -hmm. Illuminati. She's, she's in the Illuminati. <laughs> that's a fact. She drinks Purell hand sanitizer. Uh, but for me, it's not interesting. It's not coding for anything that is doing anything for me as a thinker or a consumer of music. It's simply interacting with the Taylor Swift machine and the world that she's created around herself. And to me, that's so superficial and so self-centered. I mean, she is not one of those pop stars that participates much in a political agenda or any sort of public activism. She plays all of those cards very close to her chest. So the, the mask you're getting if that was just it and she was using it for some sort of subtle criticism, I would say that's successful. But I don't really think there's anything more to this than this obsession with the Taylor Swift machine. And she's taking that all the way to the bank. Right. If the you were her, this would be – if it was her looking in the mirror and singing, yeah. singing in a very accusatory way towards you, that might yeah. be kind of mm -hmm. an interesting thing. But Pedro, I know you're dying to talk about the Paul Bass, Bass music – Saul Bass music video. The Paul Bass <laughs> Paul music Bass, video yes. is very different. It's just, <laughs> it's just him – at a compost heap with, you know, some Das Kapital or something. But no, the, that's the Paul Bass video. Before we get to the Saul Bass music video, I, I think it is – I mean, I don't know. Maybe and this is me being old Mr. Cranky Pants. But but I actually thought Shake, Shake It Off was a great pop song. Yeah. You know, you yeah. needed to know nothing. Mm -hmm. You didn't even have to know who was singing it. I mean, if you did know more, then you would maybe understand a little bit about what the uh, implicit – 
social criticism yeah. that was going on in that song. But you didn't need that. It was a damn near perfect pop song. And, and I feel that that has been <laughs> yeah. sacrificed in this instance Absolutely. toward all this other sort of deep context. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, you know, I think really good pop songs are really, really hard to write and really hard to, you know, don't come across that often. Uh, and so I think that when when you do one, I think it's great. But in in this case, I think that you're right. The message overwrote any sense of making the song really catchy. I mean, it's it's kind of earworm ish, but it's kind of a dirge. Yeah, yeah it, it it does have like a little you know a great like little sugary quality that that you know gets into you and you want a little bit more of that sugar. But yeah. but it is. You know, there has been this path of her becoming more and more just like the standard white female pop star rather than what was originally unique and yes. interesting about her mm-hmm. when she Absolutely. first appeared. And But, but I think the industry does that, uh, particularly to female pop stars. I think it does push them more and more into, you know, the Britney Spears Vain. Well, but she's you're having so a, right. She's having a feud with Katy Perry right now yeah. about who's the more basic standard. Exactly. That's exactly what it's but about. But when she yeah. first came on the scene, when I was in high school, she was refreshing because she was she coming was at it from this, this outsider perspective. Right. I'm the girl on the outside. I'm, I'm not the cheerleader. I'm not the, the cool girl. I'm awkward. Exactly. And that spoke to me then in a way. That's the only time Taylor Swift has been relevant for me was when I was in high school and she touched on that. And since then... It's all felt just so manufactured and so obviously manufactured. Like she's got a link up to all the merchandise she's selling now mm-hmm. with snake rings and hoodies <laughs> with snake on them. It's just like, come on. And we can blame her for You're compl- better than this, Taylor Swift. <laughs> you know, she's obviously complicit with that. Of course. You know, but but I think it's it's being engineered even above her head. Yeah. There are more powerful forces at play behind the scenes than just Taylor Swift. Sure. All right, so now comes the moment. Um, so even if you don't like this song very much, which I, and I, I encourage you not to like this song very much because <laughs> I, I don't think it's a very good song. But And I, I did. I, I worship Shake It Off. It's a really ideal, it perfect little pop song. Um, but uh, Pedro would like to urge you at least to spend one time through watching the um, animated video that goes along with the song right now. All right, take it away. Yes, the video is 100% animated and it's done in the style of Saul Bass. And if you don't know Saul Bass, um, if you saw any uh, Hitchcock movies from the 60s, the opening credits uh, that are all animated in this amazing trippy way, that was all him, movie posters, you know, amazing graphic design guys. It's it's a very noir style of video with with very stretchy shadows, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, like everything's kind of... Like the Pink Panther. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, like Pink Panther and and, and anything where, um, like I said, in in these these Hitchcock movies where you have, um, and actually um, the Steven Spielberg movie, Catch Me If You Can can also has the same style lyrics. That was on my screen already from Jonathan. Ah, Perfect. Thank you, Jonathan. (laughs) Uh, And uh, the, you know, the, um, so the the music video is 100% that. And, and so if you turn the sound down and just kind of watch it, uh, it's it's pretty cool. And I'm actually hoping maybe there's someone out there uh, who will put like a new, maybe, you know, noir song with the same lyrics and like match it to the video and make it look amazing. But I think um, it's definitely worth at least watching once just to see a cool, uh, cool animation. All right. Uh, now I'd like to switch gears, uh, switch topics too, to what um, may become a regular feature called "Who Are These People?" Uh, <laughs> very specific. Uh, referring to people, the people who are running this country right now. Very specifically to Louise Linton. Louise Linton is, among other things, a Scottish uh, actress, or at least she was an actress. 
Um, she may be on one of the sh- in one of the Sharknado movies eventually, based on what happened <laughs> this week. Um, but uh, so what happened this week was she was, uh, among other things, debarking a uh, either Air Force One or something that looked very much like it. Uh, she's the wife of the Treasury Secretary Steve, uh, Stephen Mnuchin, uh, and she was hashtagging her clothing, uh, which is all very fancy designer clothing. We can come back to that in a second. Um, then, uh, because this was all happening on Instagram, people were chiming in. Some the people were not chiming in admiringly, at which point, and I think most people listening probably know this story by now, she, in a very sort of sneering, condescending way, uh, wrote back to this one, you know, sort of middle-income woman, uh, uh, did you think this was a personal trip? Adorable. Do you think the U.S. government paid for our honeymoon or personal travel? L-O-L-O-L-O-L. Have you given more to the economy than me or my husband, either as an individual earner or in, in taxes or in self-sacrifice to your country. I'm pretty sure we paid more taxes toward our day trip than you did. And she just goes on and on and on. Um, in an ordinary world, this would probably be kind of a big story and kind of a big scandal, the wife of the Treasury Secretary sneering at, at an average American. Um, in the current climate, it's barely a blip on the radar. But I thought I would pause over it because it does, it does seem to have – some kind of cultural connotation to it, and and I'm trying to been trying to put my finger on what it is that I'm hearing here. In some ways, Bill Usman, it seems as though, like I, I, you know, Jackie Kennedy was a fashion icon as a first lady, but she didn't like wear the price tags to the stuff that she wore as she walked around. And there's a way in which the ostentation that goes on right now doesn't really come with any set of values or in any kind of ability to mute some of these qualities. Am I making any sense at all? You are. I'm, you know, I mean, she's straight out of Mean Girls. And, you know, this is a very, I don't, I don't want to get all serious because I know it's Friday and it's the nose, but this is a really, really mean administration. And it comes out in lots of different ways. This is just the latest manifestation of that. She, she is, I mean, obviously just, you know, I hate to psychoanalyze just based on some tweets or Instagrams or whatever, but these are really, like she really does have just this very imperial uh, kind of stance about these things. But it's very consistent with what happens with the administration who are constantly pimping products and, you know, including that gold-plated lifestyle as, as, as part of their brand. Well, yes. I mean, I, 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 once again, these things do fly by me at this point because there's just so many of them. But it was pointed out, uh, I think, yesterday in some show I was listening to that at the end of the last press conference, the president started talking about his Charlottesville winery again. Which, yeah, he did this whole, you know, crazy, you know, authoritarian rant and then started trying to sell wine at the end of it. Isn't that illegal? I'm so, is this a it, stupid question? But isn't that – you can't do that. <laughs> Well, as, as he would tell you, he can. <laughs> I'm sure he would tell me that, but isn't there some it, sort of precedent he, He's for like this? the one – If the in, president in, does in, it, it's not illegal. Right. Yeah. Nixon reminded us of that. Great. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean it, it's um, – it's borderline abuse of office, uh, but but I, but yeah, I feel as though I'm sort of trying to understand maybe even the mood. I mean, Pedro, one possibility is that this that there's a group of Americas Americans who have a kind of arrivist uh, attitude towards their wealth who we hear from them in certain contexts. I'm just not used to having them ride around on government planes and things like that. Yeah, I, I think this may be the first you know Instagram. 
uh, the, the, you know, the, the first, uh, at least the spouse of a government official, you know, uh, getting out of a government aircraft and hashtagging every single piece of clothing that they wore and, and where they came from. I mean, it was just, it was just so bizarre just to see that. Um, and then also, but again, I think with like with a lot of this um, administration, again, <laughs> taking our our Friday down a little depressingly, I think um, <laughs> I think a lot of it is um, once the uh, tone has been set from the top, then the rest kind of keeps flowing down. So you know, when when you have uh, the gold-plated lifestyle being actively flaunted from uh, the chief executive, then the rest of the people tend to say, okay, well. Okay, good. I can I can kind of let down my hair, and you know I was in um, uh, Nantucket once, and um, what what I saw there was yeah the, the way I always describe it is like this is where rich people go when no one's looking, and how they act when no one's looking, <laughs> and um, you know I think that it's very similar uh, right now. It's it's the oh I can finally like do the thing I've been wanting to do all this time rather than put on this facade of propriety. You know, and, go ahead, go ahead, Bill. And well, let's not forget, and, and this would be a topic for an entire show, so I'll just throw it out there as a side note. This was supposedly the candidate of the working class. <laughs> I mean, I, we know that, that that wasn't either statistically nor in any shape of the imagination true, but I think that always has to be put together with some of this this stuff that we're seeing. Right. So part of this is the materialism. So the hashtagging of these items, you know, I mean, the shoes are $1,000. The reporters all looked up the hashtagged items right away. The pants are $1,000. Everything's $1,000. The sunglasses are maybe maybe a little bit less. Um, but they're Tom Ford sunglasses, so they're probably not pretty less. Expensive. Yeah, pretty expensive. <laughs> so there's that. But then there's, you know, um, Rebecca, Bill said the, the response was mean. The response was, oh, I make a, I have a lot more money than you do. Aren't you adorable thinking that you can complain about me? And he's right. There's something very mean about the tone of that. And I, I, I don't know if I'm forcing a Papoulian through line here, but I feel like I can connect it to the Taylor Swift song too. There's a sense in which the prevailing attitude these days is one of meanness and aggression as yeah. opposed to sunniness. No, I absolutely agree. And I think that this whole – there's a conflict especially in between camps of, of branding of women. Are you going to be the woman that is all about bringing women together? You don't want to talk about men. You want to – you know, I look at someone like Haley Steinfeld who's releasing song after song. It's all about body positivity and not being a mean girl. So there's that one camp that's not, you know, as commercially successful as somebody like Taylor Swift or Katy Perry who is feeding into this catty – drama-fueled cycle. And I feel like this administration is very much playing into that latter trope, whereas before we had someone like Michelle Obama in office where we were just dealing with a completely different type of woman. And it's very disheartening to see on such a like deep infrastructural level us going back to this caddy, well, I dress better than you. I make more money than you. I don't, I pay my, t-. you know, it's just, it, it's childish and a shame. And I think the word that uh, the woman who called her out used was deplorable. And that's really the best word to sum it up. It really. Well, this is also an administration that uses social media in the way that most people use social media as opposed to the way that, I mean, to whatever extent we're still growing into our understanding of social media, there was sort of a sense that, well, it should be a little bit more formal, you know, during the Obama administration. But the, starting with the president, everybody here yeah. seems to use it uh, the way that the average person uses it. And that maybe isn't the best thing for leaders. All right. In order to have time to talk about the defense which we insist on talking about because we watch so many episodes of it, uh, we will take a break and we will come back. Tell me no, I love you, I love you. Every little beat that I feel in my heart seems to repeat what I felt at the start. Each little sign 
tells me that I adore you, Louis. We are, well, now we're back. We are back and we are uh, about to talk about The Defenders. Uh, the Defenders actually was a TV show when I was growing up called The Defenders, which was about lawyers. This is not about lawyers. Uh, this is a uh, part one of lawyer. One. one lawyer. There's a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, so this is part of a uh, Marvel superhero subgenre that is uh, being played out on the Netflix platform um, that specializes in uh, a certain kind of, I, I think, sort of darkness, murkiness, graininess. Um, most of the superheroes are unhappy and ambivalent about their powers, uh, unsure about how they want to live in the world. Um, so just like us, basically. Um, uh, so we'll just hear a, a little extended clip uh, and then I'll reintroduce the panel and we'll uh, tell you a little bit more about how we felt about it. Look, these people took everything from me. I'm going to take them down one way or another. I want to help one kid, one family. I'm the first to admit when I'm in over my head and this is way past my threshold. What are you talking about? Bulletproof, blind ninja, whatever it is you are. Classy. Look, I tried being a one-man army and it failed. But this, this feels like something else is at work here. The four of us show up to fight a criminal organization at the same moment. How obvious does it have to be? So this is from episode either three or four. Uh, the um, I forget. Uh, the heroes have finally met. There's four of them, I should say. Uh, Luke Cage, uh, uh, a person known as Iron Fist. Um, I'm gonna, we can try to explain all this to you at some point, I guess. Jessica Jones uh, and the and Daredevil. Uh, so the four of them have finally all met up in a Chinese restaurant, and they're having kind of a big conversation about how to proceed. Uh, they're not sure they want to be a team. And so I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not sure I know exactly. Like I know how I f feel about this series, and I think I like it better than any of the three panelists. So let me, first of all, once again, remind you uh, and reintroduce you to our three panelists. Pedro Soto, Chief Operating Officer, Spacecraft Manufacturing in New Haven. Bill Usman, Director of Media Literacy and Digital Culture Graduate Program at Sacred Heart University. Uh, and Rebecca Castellani, Entertainment Director at Bridge Street Live in Collinsville, Connecticut. Um, so... So, Pedro, I'm going to start out with you. There's some way in which – like I, I, I grew up with a kind of simpler idea. Like I really love superheroes and comic books. I was a comic book nerd growing up. But I'm sort of – I think I'm sort of dumb in the sense that I sort of need to have bad guys pouring out of that hole in the sky right there. You know? And then the good guys are down here wearing costumes and I know what their powers are and I know pretty, pretty much what they're going to try to do right now. And this isn't really anything like this. It's like – it almost seems like they're taking this as far away from the superhero template that we know as they can. That's true. And I think – so I, I, I'm I, – I, so I went into seeing the uh, – Defenders, having only seen the Defenders and none of the other Netflix shows, so I was kind of dropped into the deep end on this. But you do get a pretty good, quick sense of of how things are, and I think you're right. I mean, I think it's something where you have the interesting thing is that all four of these are all kind of the same uh, slant, where these are kind of like the secondary Marvel superheroes, and they're trying to do something different and dark with each one, and all of them are ambivalent and kind of morally gray. And, um, you know, I think that that's a lot of genre TV has moved into that. And so I think this is like the superhero gloss on that kind of morally gray anti-hero genre, uh, you know, like the Breaking Bads and things like that. Um, so I can see kind of where where it has been, uh, uh, where it was influenced from and, and what Marvel's doing. 
um, it is kind of amazing that there's four shows and now five that all <laughs> that that are all very similar in that way. Right, and I don't know. Like, so Rebecca, how many of these had you tackled in the past? Uh, we should say each of these has been a separate series: Iron Fist, Daredevil, uh, Lucas Cage, and uh, Jessica Jones. And there were even two Daredevils. Two, weren't there? two yeah. seasons of Daredevil. Yeah. Yeah. So I saw all of Jessica Jones, all of Luke Cage, half of the first season of Daredevil, and none of Iron Fist because it looked awful. Um, so I thought, <laughs> ignorantly enough, that I was going to understand everything that was going on, having you know watched a significant amount of time, spending time in this universe they've created, which I have to say I have enjoyed. I really enjoyed Jessica Jones. I thought Luke Cage was great. Daredevil obviously didn't keep my attention. Um, and I was lost. I had to stop the first episode five times to Google things, and <laughs> that does not make for a great viewing experience. Um, it's very... It's, it implies a lot of understanding of the universe that you don't have. If they had done like an extended uh, reel, a catch-up reel beforehand or something, mm. I think I would have just had a little more signposting. I would have been a little more familiar. Um, yeah, you, eventually two episodes in, you get an idea of, okay, the, who the big bad is, who they're all coming together to fight, and you can kind of tune out. But if you're like me and you're missing, you, you catch jokes and insights happening and you're not sure what's going on, it's just going to make you crazy and you're going to want to stop and research it. But it is pretty amazing that... We even have TV that can be complicated these days that yeah. where like you need a guide because you're talking about Netflix making a bet that someone has watched 65 episodes yep. of television before even going into this series and just running with it. And and obviously they, they're like the metrics king. Like they know their audience. They yeah. know exactly who watches what and what, when. Yeah. So for them to make this bet is obviously based on a pretty um, – large idea of they they know that people are actually doing this. I mean, that's an, an incredible amount of media in, in on top of everything else and every other show that people sure. watch. Although, Bill, I, I don't know that it's like, I mean, Rebecca's way more conscientious about this than I am. I, I'm, I, I've in the past had watched some of Daredevil, um, some of Jessica Jones, I think one or two Luke Cage's No Iron Fists. I didn't really know what was going on. And, and I find in those solo series too, one of the things, they're very stinting and stingy about what they dole out there too. It often takes, you have to watch like five episodes of Daredevil before he puts on a costume. It's like, you know, you have to watch Jessica Jones look really carefully to figure out what her superpower is. She never she uses it either. Never uses it, <laughs> She's really know. strong. Yeah. And and but none of that ultimately, and the fact that I didn't know like what had happened before or who was dead, who would come back to life, or I just, you know, I mean, in some ways, I, I was able to put that together and 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 enjoy it for whatever it is, which I think is a real attempt to do super super noir, more noir than Christopher Nolan superhero stuff. Yeah, I I had watched um, all of Jessica Jones and really really loved yeah, it. Yeah, I loved I, Jessica I Jones I thought it was too. just excellent. I thought it was smart and interesting. Um, Kristen and Ritter is amazing. She's, she's great. Good... Dare I say, feminist? Oh. You know, um, well, drunk feminist. Well, yeah, <laughs> great. Same difference. Um, <laughs> Luke Cage was a real slog for me. Like it, it just never grabbed me. I know that they were trying to do. Like this kind of call out to like the seventies, like black exploitation films and all of that, yeah. um, with the gangsters in Harlem. But it just never really connect. It was it was a real slog, and even now I feel like I'm most interested. I perk up the most when Jessica Jones appears. There's there's a certain snark that she brings, or levity, or or or, or ironic distance from it, where. 
you know, the rest of it is, can be awful, awful earnest. She voiced a lot of my concerns as a viewer. Like a lot of this, right. really, are we going to go into this cliche? And she was right there every time calling that out. And that was the most refreshing part of the whole thing was she was able to kind of make fun of the, the genre tropes that they were exploiting. So, Pedro, here, this will be my attempt to perhaps overthink this. Um, <laughs> but I was, I was trying to think, OK, what sort of – if I were taking Bill Usman's class, you know, what would I say about this to try to impress him in my term paper? Uh, and, Use the word hegemony. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes. uh, you're not far off actually because one of the things I was thinking is that th- at least I, – I, and I'm not all the, way, all the way through the series right now. But to me, one of the things that's complicated or, or and interesting and a little bit different about this series is that it takes a long time for – the alignments to kind of shake out. So there are a couple of moments where and in that famous Chinese restaurant scene where I I think um, Jessica Jones points to Daredevil and Iron Fist and says to Luke Cage, they don't know it, but they're on the same side. And he says something like, same side of what? Or something like that. And, And what's interesting here is that there isn't an easy consensus about anything and, and that, you know, one of the reasons they have so much trouble coming together as a team is because, well, Jessica Jones is just a PI working a case and, and Luke Cage is mainly interested in helping his neighborhood. He apparently doesn't know that his neighborhood is being taken over by Jared Kushner and a lot of other <laughs> developers <laughs> anyway. But I mean, he thinks he thinks there's a place called Harlem that's worth saying. That's, and he wants to do that. He wants to save in particular this one young black man, you know, and then Iron Fist has this very complicated understanding of the, some other place that he's from and, and, and Daredevil is damaged in all these certain ways and also kind of maybe understands the context. But it's kind of like America, right? It's like everybody has their own little thing, you know? That's true. I mean, I I, I do think that everyone takes it from a different slant. Uh, Each character does see New York City in some ways from a different perspective and they're trying to kind of blend all that together. And and that does work, I think, especially, you know, in in the the, the little hours that I've seen of the show. um, You do get a sense of of that, even even the way each character is shot, even the way, um, you know, I know there was a discussion about uh, in our emails about the colors being used. Um, you know, they definitely do try to at least um, take everything and, and bring everyone in from a different perspective, and that that does that does have a it's working so far from what I've seen. I- I sort of thought, like, this is my one little app or two from today. I was watching this whole thing and I thought, oh, well, that's how Donald Trump got elected, right? Because the Bernie bros couldn't get along <laughs> with the, you know, like, all these people, like, didn't trust each other yeah. enough to coalesce against a common enemy. And there's, I think, in a way, I mean, to use a Bill Usman term then, it's not so much hegemony, but Ken's consensus doesn't exist as easily and as comfortably as it did in the Justice League of America, where you didn't see Aquaman and Green Lantern having these big you know, nasty conversations about whether they can trust each other. Well, that's also really a very consistent Marvel trope, too. Um, Like Colin, you know, I've read Marvel comic books for more years than I even want to admit. And even like back in the 60s, in the first Avengers comic books, they all kind of hated each other. Um, When Captain America joined and they turned the team over, like Hawkeye hated Captain America and Quicksilver hated everybody. And they were just like kind of reluctantly coming together because there's this other 
more dangerous force that I guess I do have to align with people who I don't particularly like in order to fight off. And I kind of wish the American left would figure that out too. I mean, one of the things that I liked about this, Rebecca, was, and I find these the satellite series or the solo series hard to get through because the characters are so individually morose and burdened by their problems and nobody seems to be particularly happy. And they're just, they're not good company for a long stretch of time for me. Even Jessica Jones, I felt that way. One nice thing about this was that, you know, I mean, I could sort of, the, the series in its early stages jumps from one to the other pretty quickly. So if I got really tired of hanging around with Luke Cage, well, I'd have to wait too long. I'd be hanging around with Iron Fist, who I would even more quickly get tired of, you know. <laughs> and some, something about that, I think, is, is, at least for me, makes this a little bit more digestible. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm so entrenched in the Game of Thrones thing right now that it's hard for me, because they have done that, disparate stories, connecting them slowly, building that anticipation of your characters coming together mm-hmm. so well. And, you know, this season has got some problems, but this idea of bringing people together after seven seasons of seeing them all over this continent is very rewarding and without being difficult for me to track. Whereas this show, when the initial jumping around, because I didn't have that connection to each one of those individual characters like I do after six seasons of Game of Thrones, when they did finally meet up, I was like, great, now is it going to get better? Like, it, it didn't have that moment where suddenly they're all in the same room and you're like, oh, I've been waiting for this, this is so exciting, because it assumed this level of investment in the characters that I just didn't have going into it. Despite, you know, my, I felt I like Jessica Jones, Luke Cage is some dang good eye candy. <laughs> but short of that, it just, I wasn't, I wasn't connected with them enough to feel that gratification of when they all came together and it wasn't that moment for me. It just kind of felt like, okay, well now that they figured that out, can we get to fixing the bigger problem? It just didn't have that same slow burn that I think is necessary to that sort of convergence. You can, yeah, go ahead. Oh, you can argue actually that uh, Marvel did that a little bit better with the movies. Yes. The um, with the Avengers and, and bringing that yeah. whole world together. And that's gratifying when you see, you know, that's Spider-Man yeah. meet up with the Avengers. You're like, oh, this is so cool. Like it yeah. just lacked that excitement to me. Just I got so excited when Giant Man appeared that my kids were laughing at me. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think, uh, can we also just talk about a couple of the performances here? I mean, so the four principles are uh, of varying degrees of, of enjoyability. Uh, I think you think Kristen Ritter is terrific as Jessica Jones. Yep. Um, and I, I like Charlie Cox. As Charlie Daredevil. Cox is good. He's a little bit too much like Mark Oppenheimer. But, um, <laughs> but you know, the other two performances I wanted to quickly mention were our kind of senior citizen performances. One of them is by Sigourney Weaver. Sigourney Weaver is the villainess of this show. And she really is this woman who shops at the Chico's from hell. She has like this very distractingly weird wardrobe. Um, she's an, kind of an eternal being. She makes has all these little slips. She says Constantinople instead of Istanbul <laughs> because she's been alive that long. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of enjoying her. Is anybody else finding her like over the top or – I mean, everything else is a little over the top, so I'll take a little Sigourney Weaver camp for sure. I, I love her. I think she's fabulous. I love the Hillary Clinton power suit gone wrong. <laughs> I thought it was great. This is one of the redeeming yeah, parts. Yeah. And, I, you know, in terms of, as I've said before, I mean, overall Marvel, especially in the movies, just has usually pretty bad, flat, one-note villains. Yeah. So to actually have someone who even when I first started watching – Again, because I was coming from zero, I didn't realize. I was like, oh, maybe she's not a villain. Oh, she's the villain. Yeah. Oops. So, you know, I think that, that she was great. And again, I mean, Sigourney Weaver's just the best actress ever. So She manages to get a little pathos out of this villain, too. Yeah, she says yeah you feel bad for her yeah, at the beginning. You, you have a sense that maybe she's not the most 
villainous of all of the villains that are in it. But that also, I, I found something, uh, I found a couple things a little troubling, which is, you know, Colin, uh, during our email ex- exchanges, you kind of pointed out like this kind of, you know, false kind of like hashtag woke thing. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, Sigour- Sigourney Weaver is the only one of all of these villains who is not a person of color from another country. Mm-hmm. All the rest of them are. And all of the heroes, except for Luke Cage, are white people, mm-hmm. um, including someone who, you know, has supposedly, you know, comes, you know, out of Asia. And it's supposed to be. So it's kind of like faux right. multicultural on the surface and yet kind of re- recreating some of those same old tropes of, uh, you know, who's good and who's bad. It felt right. like pandering to me often. Yeah. Right. It, there's a. It's not too many steps removed from Big Trouble in Little China or something yeah. like that. It's sort of got a little of those qualities. We have to go to a break. The other performance I just want to say something nice about is Scott Glenn. Scott Glenn uh, plays the stick. It's not far removed, speaking of not far removed, from Mr. Miyagi and the rat in uh, Ninja Turtles. It's that kind of role, but he's really terrific at it. Mm-hmm. He's 78 years old. He has like negative body fat. And he actually does tra- – I read, read about this in the New York Times this weekend. He – does all this martial arts training. He does like these massive, at the age of 78, uh, martial arts workouts with people with knives and sticks. But before we do that, before we go to break, we have a very special treat for you because really, although we've talked about, you know, two of the really great performances, we haven't talked about all of the really great performances. Um, One of our regular, not regular enough to suit me, but one of our occasionally regular nose panelists, uh, Melanie Cantaya, is an actor, humorist, and of course the author of actor, writer, whatever. And really, we we haven't described the plot of this thing very well. I mean, really, the plot of this thing is Sigourney <laughs> Weaver goes for an MRI, and um, well, here's how it sounds actually. You'll need to disrobe, jewelry and all. And, and that's pretty much launches the whole thing. I mean, that's the plot right there is it gets rocked. And then the, everybody else is kind of a supporting cast. This is mostly a Melanie Cantaya vi- vehicle. I don't think I made that clear at the beginning. So you were here a little while ago, Melanie, and you did let us know you were going to be in The Defenders. So it's so, so exciting to see you up there on the screen. Yes, um, me too, because it's such a small role. <laughs> you know, you never know when it's that small if you're going to wind up on the cutting room floor because you're not really sort of essential to the plot. So that's exciting that I'll be getting my residual checks. Yeah. And uh, and it's, of course, exciting to see yourself on screen with Sigourney Weaver, who is like this towering presence, both literally and figuratively. So that was, yeah, it was, it was pretty thrilling. You know, many people have asked Sigourney Weaver to disrobe. Uh, you're the only one who's ever gotten her to do it. Um, right. Bill Murray didn't have any luck. And her jewelry. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I don't know. Just in general, it must be, even though it's a small role, but there are, of course, we know there's no small parts. Um, it must be fun to be associated with this, too. I mean, did you, I assume you had to know at least Sigourney Weaver a little bit. Did you get to meet uh, any of the defenders? No, no, no. Um, I actually... At the very beginning of the scene of the Daredevil plot, you see that he's, like, closing up a case. And I actually auditioned for the role of that attorney. And then they call me back because my agent doesn't usually submit me for roles this small. Um, So, but then they call me back saying, oh, we'd really like to see her for this. I'm like, okay. But you never know. They don't really give you a script or anything to work with. 
Um, so then I auditioned for that. I had no idea it was going to be Sigourney Weaver until I was done with makeup in wardrobe and we're in the van to go from our trailers into the, we shot in a hospital in the Bronx. Yeah. And we had a very pleasant conversation about uh, the Botanic Gardens in the Bronx. And that was it. After, usually when I get to set, I usually don't like to interact personally right. with anyone I'm in a scene with. Um, too much, I kind of like to give them their space, you know, to do whatever they have to do. Um, and uh, if I have something that's a little bit more challenging than this was, you know, I'll, I I would need my space too. But she's very pleasant. I suspect that I was cast because I'm a good foot shorter than her. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so they needed someone that would uh, uh, go behind her. But, you know, She's got charisma. Yes, oh, absolutely. Well, this is, I mean, the, the entire time that this thing has been coming towards us, I've been referring to it to Jonathan and anyone else is, yeah, it's the one that Melanie Cantaya is in. Uh, <laughs> so I'm glad that you're in it. I'm glad they didn't cut you. Uh, and, yeah, me too. Yeah. Anything else? So what do I have to get ready for next? Do you know yet? Like what, what, what's the next uh, Melanie Cantaya vehicle I should know about? I don't know. Well, that's show business. That's the way know, show business works. Keep you. I, I have a, a couple of things I'm waiting to hear about, and I will let you know when I know. Yeah. No. Well, I have a script circulating right now that's written for you and Carolyn Payne. Uh, I just want to have oh, yeah. it be like a, an all-nose cast. Thanks for uh, being on the show today. The next time you're in the you're in the area, you know where to come. You know where to be. You're always welcome here. We love having you on the nose. Oh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. All right, Melanie Kintaya, the star, really. If you get right, if you really look at it carefully and understand how the plot works, uh, she is the star of the Defenders. We'll take a break. We'll come back for some quick endorsements. Today's show was produced by the human grumpy cat, whose secret identity is Jonathan McPants, and me, Kion Wolf. Amanda Fish is dating Aquaman. The part of Bill Curry was played by Sigourney Weaver. On Monday's show, the further adventures of Scramble Man. And now, back to Colin. All right, I've totally screwed up the clock here. You each have 60 seconds or less to do your recommendations or endorsements. Rebecca? Okay, um, in response to this whole Taylor Swift thing, I'm going to give you two strong female ladies that do great music videos. Margaret Glaspie, I highly recommend Emotions and Math. Great song, great vid. And Jenny Lewis, who's formerly mm -hmm. of Rilo mm -hmm. Kiley, mm -hmm. just one of the guys. Great video. Strong women, good message, good lyrics, not snakes. All right. <laughs> Pedro? Okay, um, so this Saturday uh, in New Haven, there is the New Haven, the first ever uh, New Haven Craft Beer Fest. So downtown New Haven's first ever outdoor craft beer festival, and it's going to be Saturday. You have to buy tickets online. Um, I think you can go to beerfests.com and get the information. A uh, lot of good beer, fun in downtown New Haven. Looks like it's good weather, so it's worth the trip. All right. Bill Usman. I'd like to endorse Dick Gregory. Um, he, it was unfortunate. He passed away at the same time that Jerry Lewis did. So Jerry Lewis got all the attention. People should really know Dick Gregory. He was an amazing author, comedian, activist. You can still buy his books. You can buy his albums. You can see lots of video from him on YouTube. He's really worth knowing and still very relevant for what's happening today. 
Great endorsement. I noticed that Michael Che signing off on his uh, summer update thing this oh. week signed himself off as Dick Gregory. He said, and I'm Dick Gregory. That's awesome. Yeah, as a little little salute there. Um, okay, so, uh, well, you guys went really fast, actually, so <laughs> I actually can probably endorse two different things. Well, one of them is, uh, okay, so this isn't peak TV. Uh, I think that's fair to say. But uh, the Discovery Channel's um, scripted series with actors about the Unabomber case right. is really enjoyable, right? It's, yeah. I mean, it's not peak TV. I mean, just in terms of the, the depth of the shots and the things that we're kind of used to from, say, a Netflix series or an HBO series, it's just not like that. It, it has some very lovely performances. Sam Worthington is this plays this super obsessed to the point of being really kind of an unpleasant person, uh, real-life FBI agent who did figure out the Unabomber thing. It, it's a really interesting – even if you know the story, um, it, it's a really interesting depiction of how they did this and the way that language, forensic linguistics they called it, played this incredible role in, in cracking the story. Uh, there's also uh, an, an interesting performance by Mark Duplass, who's the other actor who reminds me of Mark Oppenheimer, uh, as David Kaczynski, the brother who – well, anyway, it's, it's actually – I mean, don't expect peak TV, but watch it. I mean, it's actually – I've gotten very hooked on the whole thing. And then I've endorsed this before, but they're now in their second season, um, the podcast Homecoming. This is Eli Horowitz's invention. You have to go way back to the beginning. It's a sequential story. Also great cast, Oscar Isaacs, Catherine Keener, um, David Schwimmer, all doing voice work uh, on a dramatic uh, podcast series. I don't know ultimately whether there's any there there, like where, the, where this goes, but just the fact that they're using media this way. And now Eli Horowitz, who's this very creative guy who's been on our show, has also released on iTunes or uh, yeah, iTunes books uh, on a sort of a parallel novel that goes along with some of the other plots that are in this thing. So I don't know. If you want to see how media is being used in interesting ways and maybe get a good grade from Bill Usman uh, just for knowing about stuff like this, Homecoming uh, on Gimlet Media is worth it. Thanks to Rebecca Castellani, uh, Pedro Soto, and Bill Usman. Great news panel. We'll be back on Monday. We'll figure out over the weekend what we'll be talking about. said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah. Is that you, Taylor Swift? Hey, it's Taylor. It is I, sarcastic insult girl. I knew I'd eventually face my mortal enemy, Taylor Swift. Or is it Taylor Slow? <sighs> Should have seen that one coming. <laughs>